on this episode of the Alt Normal. Normal. You will not be able to access the best talent if you can't figure out how to make your place work for them. So it's it's not just the inherent value of diversity itself, which could be a compelling enough story. It's also this piece of like, how do you actually access those people? How do you attract them? How do you activate them? How do you retain them? So both of those people, those, those parts are really compelling, I think. Another coronavirus vaccine has shown to be highly effective. Welcome to the Alt Normal, an exploration of the diverse voices on planet Earth. Joe Biden will become president of the United States. Doing the critical work of rebuilding a healthier, more sustainable alternative future. At the intersection of self, community, and the planet. We live in uncertain times. Powerful moments of revolution. How we choose to steer the path will determine what kind of alt-normal we consciously remake together. Everyone has a part to play. Let's rise. Shift and support this exciting new reality in the making. The alt-normal. Hi, I'm Tiffany Wen, the host of The Alt-Normal. This is a show that centers embodied integration as the absolutely critical force for rebuilding this post-pandemic world that's ever more sustainable, diverse, and inclusive. Culture needs a rebrand that goes deep at the core of who we are in the integration of our rich diversity, complexity, and emerging alternative paradigms. Let's be real. We are in a crisis of consciousness realizing that the only way to change things out there is to first change things in here. The power structures and institutions can only take us so far. To see a world that's diverse and inclusive for all actually requires us to change from the inside out, shifting into actionable models of power with one another versus power over one another. Now more than ever, we need a new story for humanity that leans into the diversity of who we are and our emerging zones of genius to live more truthfully in how we relate to ourselves, our community, and the planet. So let's pick up those forgotten pieces of ourselves to rebrand our story of humanity from one of separation to one of integration. We're talking integration of the mind with the body, the scientific with the spiritual, strategy with emergence, and the individual with the collective. This show is produced by Resonance, the creative practice of Dig, Seed, Grow, a methodology that powers our core capabilities in branding and content creation. Our mission is to design resonance between brands and their most valuable audience to drive the greatest possible impact. After 20 plus years of working in New York City and Milan for Fortune 500 companies in marketing and advertising, we decided to take the big leap and make a fundamental shift in how we work and bring brand stories to life. The Alt Normal is recorded at Destination Outpost, a co-living and co-working community based out in Bali. They have amazing spaces located in Ubud and Chenggu, that enable people to live and work from paradise, encouraging people to live differently so they can work from beautiful destinations and build strong connections with others on a similar path through life. So I am so excited to introduce our guest today, Rada Jovovich. So Rada is an experienced coach, meta-coach, mediator, trainer, and facilitator based in Chicago. Her clients include executives, founders, rising professionals, artists, and coaches, facilitators, and healers. She specializes in building leadership competencies that maximize individual and team potential and aligning goals with values for individuals and teams and organizations to create cultural alignment and collective commitment. She also co-leads the Rising Practitioner Circles, 
a national collaborative community of practice and growth for transformational facilitators, coaches, mediators, consultants, and trainers. She also co-founded a next-gen consultancy, The Darkest Horse, focused on helping teams build integrated future-of-work talent management strategies, policies, and cultural practices that support a culture of diversity, equity, accessibility, and radical inclusion. It is so wonderful, Rada, to have you on the show today. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Really happy to be here. So you have started this consultancy called The Darkest Horse, which um, is very, very interesting to me. Um, You say at some point on your website, as homogenized teams fall behind, the darkest horses take the lead. So I'd love to just open this conversation up and ask you, who is this darkest horse and how will they lead during these pandemic uncertain times that we live in? Yeah, totally. Um, Awesome. Great. Very exciting place to start. And of course, you know, a good question when I like want to say four answers at once, right? Um, So I will start by saying yeah, the the name the darkest horse, um, we'll start there. It comes from phrase the dark horse, um, which is really popular in American history and sports and politics that refers to sort of the horse that nobody even really expected to be in the race that ends up winning. And so it's to be contrasted with, for example, a thoroughbred, right? The horse that has been bred to be a winner in the race. And so it's this idea that like, the, the person that has the most adversity, the person that's the most overlooked often kind of gains these skills, has these differentiating capacities and also develops a resiliency, right? The thoroughbred in the metaphor doesn't really have as much access to, right? In a lot of cases. And that those characteristics are actually the thing that get us to the next innovative new place, right? And this is this idea that that emerged and became really obvious to me as a leader um, in my own career. So I was, I spent many years sort of in corporate America in not in HR or DEIA roles, right? In like data science, operations, product innovation, strategy, growth, those kinds of things. And just noticing that like in the teams that I was leading, it was really obvious that when I treated them as though their difference was not something that I liked them despite of, but was actually part of what I really loved about them um, and part of what made them belong on the team and made them a huge asset on the team, they started showing up, right? They started showing up more authentically. They trusted each other more. They collaborated better. They had more innovative solutions. um, And our results were better, right? And everybody also was happier, right? (laughs) And felt more affirmed um, and valued and respected. And that just became really obvious. And it started resulting in these folks. I I ended up stealing people from other teams that were like, there were so many times that there were people who were like wandering around the organization, trying to find a home, you know, and like getting bad reviews, right? And stuff like that. And then I would meet them and say, oh, you just haven't, had the space to actually shine, right? You haven't had what you needed uh, to actually thrive in work. And they'd come on my team and suddenly start getting recognized um, as leaders and as high performers and things like that. Um, So those are the darkest horses, right? And you know, uh, the name, the darkest horse is, um, is sort of a question in it, right? Like the question is who is that darkest horse, right? Like, and sort of internally within you, What is the part of you that is your own darkest horse, right? How can you be showing up to those parts of you that, you know, were outliers, were exceptional, and somewhere along the way that got translated into and not okay in this room, you know? Um, And how do we actually help those parts of you thrive and help those parts of you win in in a diverse and robust and innovative future? Wow. Thank you for unpacking that. And I love it to understand that you almost experimented with how can I just show up as my full self and help others feel included in that and just noticed how that might transform the culture, the dynamics at play. And I think that's a great segue because you wrote an article back in September called, quote, we are banning the D word, end quote. 
and and why we essentially need something new. And that sort of sets up the foundation for your framework, D-E-I-A. So I would love to just open up and ask you um, why you're over this D diversity metric and why you're ready to bring this new framework into the light. Yeah, the 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 banning the D word um came from, you know, my co-founder Shante Thurmond who is really wonderful, brilliant human being. She and I were really tired of folks uh coming to us and being obsessed with recruiting. She's been a recruiter and executive search, you know, headhunter for years. And even so, she was like that's the wrong that's the wrong place to start right people think diversity and numbers they think about who's in the room right so if we define these terms like diversity is basically who's in the room right you look around and you see what kinds of folks are represented what numbers you have you know and and in what positions of power they're in and things like that and then equity right which we want to contrast between equity and equality right where equity equality is like everybody getting the same thing and equity is getting sort of what they need, right, to make an even playing field, um, recognizing sort of historical oppression and disadvantages and and things like that. Um, the one of the metaphors we use here is like equality would be everybody getting the same size shoe, and equity would be people getting shoes that actually fit their feet, right, um, regardless of whether your feet are average sized or not. Um, and then inclusion, right, is like where if we have all these different folks. Inclusion is like, do they actually, when they get there, do they find that there are things that are sort of built to let them be authentic, right? Um, So not just, and that's sort of what I was talking about before, about like, you could bring a lot of different kinds of people in and say, you're great as long as you sort of fit under this umbrella. Um, And when we say radical inclusion, we actually are saying like, that that we, we want a person who comes and makes the umbrella bigger, right? We're looking for culture ads, right? And then accessibility uh, is can they even get there in the first place, right? Like it, are things set up so that all sorts of people can show up? And that that can include both like literally, you know, the is it physically accessible to them in, geogra- in, in physical space? But it can also mean like, do you have the kinds of technologies that they're going to need to be able to do the same work as, you know, as another person, right? If they have neurodiversity, if they have physical disability. And so when we talk about this, we're, we see diversity as the consequence, right? That we start with accessibility because if people can't get there, nothing else matters, right? There's, if they can't show up, you could create all the best policies in the world. You'd still, you'd be creating it for no one. And then that equity and inclusion shows up, right? Once they get there, are they going to be treated in the way that they need and deserve to be treated? Are they going to find that what's true about them is welcome, right? And that they don't have to just sort of like assimilate um, and homogenize, right? And that when you do those three things correctly, you get diversity, right? That you can't you can't treat it as a numbers game from the beginning because then you're just like cycling people through. You're like forcing folks in to the extent that they can even, you know, access it, right? Which again, is a non-starter, but and they they don't stick around because they they can't thrive they can't be successful they won't be happy they don't belong there right and so we call diversity a vanity metric and we say yes measure it to see how you're doing right see that as a consequence for sure but if you set your sights directly at it um, and try and go sort of at that metric like you don't actually get to the outcomes that you need you end up losing a lot of money and not actually having the kind of real intention that diversity has, right? Because I guess the, the, it's like the step back is why do we care about diversity, right? Why is diversity, why does it even matter? And on the one hand, it matters in the way that it's the right thing to do, right? That it like creates more justice for more kinds of people, which is great, but it also matters because, well, first, but is it really justice if they're not actually getting treated equitably, right? If, if they're getting like put in these positions that aren't actually good for them. And there's all these like business case of diversity stories that are saying like, it gives you more innovative solutions and it, you know, it, it, it all the things that I was talking about before, your, your employees are more engaged and things like that, but the actual numbers are not what does that right? It's the ability to have those foot actually producing, right? And actually engaged and actually like activating and accessing the most creative parts of themselves that actually yields that result. And so facing just 
the diversity aspect of it doesn't actually get you to those objectives. So it's sort of a like distracting vanity metric. Everybody sort of gets like narrow sighted onto it um, and loses sight of what actually um, is going to make the impact in the organization. Right, right. That's, it's a very uh, real way to distinguish what all four things are and almost working backwards so that you can make the most out of diversity. So it becomes less of a vanity metric and it becomes, you know, what it, the the true potential it really has. And, you know, I like to also sometimes bring in nature as a teacher and, you know, some of the strongest and most resilient um, ecosystems are the, the most biodiverse ones, right? But if that's true for nature, then Obviously, that has to be true for humans, and all these cases have shown evidence for that. But then, right, as humans, how do we actually like set our biases aside or set our stories aside to really enter a more inclusive, belonging culture? And that belonging word um, also sticks out to me. And, you know, because of the world we live in, you know, leadership likes to measure. Leadership likes to quantify and understand how are we actually tracking growth. So in this DEIA framework, how do you um, and Shante at Dark Horse measure these, um, you know, core principles or core experiences um, and especially belonging as well because that's such a day-to-day feeling? Yeah. Yeah, I love that. And I, I think, um, yeah, before I even get kind of into the metrics piece of it, I kind of want to touch on what you pointed to with the, yeah, with the value of what diversity creates, right? When you bring that sort of nature metaphor. And I, 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 I like that. And I think that is a helpful metaphor. And I think that it's, you know, there's sort of two sides of it. One is the value of bringing different people together and that that generates, right, in the way that your sort of nature metaphor demonstrates and, and, you know, um, represents. And there's also another one, which is that there's no, the best talent inherently is distributed among a lot of different kinds of people, right? There's no, there's no reason to believe that, you know, white straight cis men between, you know, above the height of six feet tall are actually have a higher density of talent, right? They certainly have a higher density of, you know, privilege and access and, you know, things like that. And so there are ways that like, there's a bit of a curve that, that shifts it, but, but when it comes to creativity, when it comes to all sorts of different, you know, math skills, like whatever, whatever those things that you're looking for on your team, they're actually distributed across a lot of different identities. And so it's not just that bringing different identities together is valuable in and of itself, which it is, but in a world, and this is where we start thinking, especially about the future of work, right? Where in a world where we're recruiting for talent, no longer within a five mile radius of a geographic headquarters location of an office, right? Uh, because those those days are gone, not only because of the pandemic, but also because of like where we were going anyway, and, and the technology that we already had able to do this, right? Companies, especially competitive companies, right? are going to start competing for a universe of talent. To access the best talent, they're going to be all over the country, all over the world. They're going to have all sorts of different gender identities. They're going to have different orientations. They're going to have different ages. They're going to have, you know, different socioeconomic. They're going to have different backgrounds, different worldviews, different, you know, um, cultural tendencies, right? And you will not be able to access the best talent if you can't figure out how to make your place work for them. So it's it's not just the inherent value of diversity itself, which could be a compelling enough story. It's also this this piece of like how do you actually access those people, right? And how do you how do you attract them? How do you activate them? How do you retain them? Right. So it's like both of those people, those those parts are really compelling, I think. Yeah. And it's it's just interesting because I mean, when we talked before this podcast, I had to ask you, what does the A stand for? And when you said it, it was like, oh, that's so obvious. But it's just, right, when you read about, you know, trends in DEI, sometimes you hear the B for belonging, um, but A is sort of... Another A for allyship or, yeah. Right, right. And it's often 
overshadow. And it's just um, a bit perplexing to me as to why culturally the A just sometimes isn't tacked on to everything else since they're so interconnected. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's one of the funny things that um, about, you know, any industry where you are positioning yourself on the cutting edge, right. Um, and which is exactly where Shantae and I live, right. Like we, we are consultants, we're trainers and things like that, but like our, our train, our trainings are never the same twice, right. Because we are also first and foremost thought leaders, right. And we are spending our time with other thought leaders on this sort of cutting edge of like, not just what's true about now that wasn't true yesterday, but what's true in five years that we didn't even think of yesterday. Right. And so always staying ahead of like, what do we see coming and how do we do what we need to do now so that we can be that darkest horse, you know, winning that race in the future. And so that means that it's changing all the time, right? If you pay attention, things change. And and as things change, we use different words, you know, and language evolves beautifully and rapidly. And so, you know, we see these acronyms shifting. And to be honest, you know, and I, I can kind of, I can, I can map where other DEIA, B and A, whatever experts land based on sort of which words and acronyms they're using where, you know, diversity folks, I'm like way old school. When they're like a little bit newer, they start introducing inclusion. If they're like, you know, a little more millennial aged, they start really bringing in equity, right? I see almost nobody really talking about accessibility in their acronym. And then we're starting to say, okay, it's time that we actually start moving toward justice and liberation, right? And we haven't quite put it into the acronym yet, <laughs> but you start hearing it a lot in our words, right? It's like, how do we actually just create a just, and this is, it's tied to equity, right? But justice actually highlights a little bit more the recognition of the systems in place, right? And the systems, systems of privilege and oppression that we all exist in, right? That we have to, and this is, this is the space where like words like anti-racism start being really important, right? That anti-race, just not being racist is sort of the old school approach, right? And anti-racism kind of has been emerging, particularly since um, the sort of racial awakening following George Floyd's murder, where it's like, no, you have to actually be working against the moving walkway of racism, the system of racism that we all are born into and trained into. And that's where this justice piece comes up right? is like actually being a force for good that shifts and, and challenges those normative oppressive systems that are really, really tough, but, you know, can, can we have a million decisions a day that we're unconsciously making in an oppressive system? And, and each time, if you start like wearing, we talk about wearing inclusion goggles or equity goggles, right? And you start seeing it everywhere, right? And, you start seeing the opportunities you have. Like it, it could be as simple as like, what brand of, te- of toothpaste do you buy? And is it being produced by the prison complex, right? Turns out a lot of them are, right? And that's one of those, those unconscious decisions that we make that reinforce these oppressive systems. But it's one small of, of millions a day <laughs> that we make that has an opportunity to be made a little bit of a different way. Wow. I'm going to be really looking forward to when you do tack the ju- the justice piece on and, and how that looks and is operationalized because, right, the conversation so much about how can you hire for the right people and then send them along their merry way, but then what actually happens within teams and across departments and in boardrooms with leaders. And these are the types of uh, places where I think live the greatest opportunity, which you're speaking to. So- just to color what you're saying a little bit more, can you call to mind um, an organization or a business or a brand that you and Shantae have worked with recently um, that you feel like are really doing it right or just asking the right questions or taking actions in an incremental way that you think will lead to the best possible outcomes? Who's just doing it right in this space? And how much can you illustrate around that? Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think about what I, you know, that's the kind of question that I, I like, like to get consent for from organizations. And, you know, I think I'm trying to, 
because we've worked with so many awesome. And I, I, I think rather than like naming specific organizations, I would love to talk a little bit instead about like what I've, the, the, what I've seen work. Right. And what I, what, what really impresses me. Right. And what makes me like, okay, cool. This is, this is going to be good. And I think that what it is, is, is this, this um, space that we've, we've been talking about a ton that I think you're like for folks that haven't already seen it sort of popping up in whatever um, trend feeds you follow. I think it's, you're going to start soon, right? This is me putting on like a little bit of a thought leadership hat here is revisiting the concept of change management where, you know, I think change management is one of those things that it's like, and and it's going to be named something else because it's kind of a lame name. And I don't know exactly what it's going to get called, but the, the concept that I'm talking about is like, if you think about, you think about capacity for transformation, right? That there are things about organizations that position them really well to be able to affect and sustain and thrive in a shift in growth, right? In in recognizing a new way of being that is authentically good and moving as an organization, as a united, you know, and collective organization toward that vision, toward that future. And it's one of those things that we can we can kind of spot in organizations, you know, and, and we're trying, we're in the process of trying to kind of come up with our list of like, what exactly are those hallmarks? You know, what are the, what are the characteristics of an organization that actually makes them capable to move, like to stay grounded in, in that, which makes them beautiful, but also have the capacity for change, right. Still, still centered in that gravity. And, and these are all the ways that, again, like to your point earlier, that like, we could be talking about a person. We could be talking about a family. We could be talking about a community. We could be talking about a company, right? Like these are these are things that are like internal, and we can experience collectively. Is capacity for that shift in an authentic and aligned and like and liberated right way? And you know, one really big one is the question of how they handle and, and how they handle power, right. And, and where power sits. And it's, it's actually not that there's a right way for power to exist in an organization. I happen to be biased toward non-hierarchical, you know, kind of collective organizations oriented toward like mutuality as a bias of mine. That's not the only way that this can happen, but what is really important is that there's like an understanding of what the power looks like, right? Where where we can define power as the ability to do, right? And so in that definition, like everybody has some power and it kind of shows up in different ways because everybody has an ability to do different things in, in you know, to different extents. And so it's this question of like, who in your organization has the ability to do what, right? There's often clarity who has the sometimes not clarity but who has the the um power to change policy who has the power to dictate you know if it's a uh, the product or 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 offering or whatever you know specs right who has the power to define or redefine the mission who has the power to change the way of working in the organization and again it's not that there's a correct or incorrect answer to those questions but it's can you answer it and are your systems aligned with that answer, right? And when we see organizations that really struggle to be this kind of like change fluent organization that can that can take on the kind of transformation that we're talking about here, right? Because when we're talking about these big systems and trying to really like integrate um, and internalize them, it's tough. It's tough for a person. It's tough for a system. And so it really demands that you can find that center of gravity, right? And you can know what your levers are, and then you can pull them. And we see organizations that don't know who has what power, right? And they and and there are some that like they don't they they have a really really robust grassroots effort, you know, like a lot of really talented talented and activated people, but they don't actually have systems that like turn that into action. I we've worked with an organization where you know the co-founders really wanted to like empower the rest of the organization to have more agency and they did that by like effectively sort of leaving the room and saying okay you all have meetings without us 
but they didn't actually empower the group, right? They just sort of took the power with them when they left. And so the group couldn't get anything done and they couldn't figure out how to like latch into change and move. So the organizations, that's, that's really the, like the thing that, that, that I would point to as the defining sort of set of characteristics for who's doing it really well is people who have that capacity, that, that ability to um, authentically and integratedly shift and move forward and evolve and sort of like, you know, take on a new identity in a sense without, without rejecting or shedding the old one. You know, it's like saying it's growing more into being yourself essentially. And I think that's, that's the hallmark of organizations that do this really, really well. Yeah. It's, um, it calls to mind, um, the sense of inner leadership, which we've explored in past episodes. And when you really take that responsibility within yourself, whether you're an executive or someone more junior, but you are, like you said, bringing, you know, that full self and finding that center of gravity and doing these things that maybe you don't really necessarily learn in an orientation on the job, but you know to be true in your whole life. Because I think when you can really embody the fullness of who you are and the fullness of your inner truths, diversity, stories, then you can just better show up and be a better person <laughs> regardless. And I think this is a... Yeah, well, and I... I well, and I would, I would, again, I would, I'm, I'm really, I think that the, like the ping pong back and I, and I love to do this, right? Like I, I'm, I'm obsessed with like one of the parts that's core to your podcast here, right? Is like recognizing when there are parallels in, and I, I point to them in like the four levels, right? Like individual, like my internal system, my, my relationship with one other person, right? Like how I am relationally how I am in community, right? In a group of people that, or how a community is, right? That the same thing that can manifest in me personally can manifest in a relationship, can manifest in a community and can manifest in a, a system where folks are not like directly linked, right? But they they could be linked through space and time, right? And, and the, exactly what you're talking about is real at each of those levels, right? That it's that like knowing and loving and having like, at knowing and loving as I am or as my company is and recognizing the capacity for growth and the capacity for change at the same time, right? And, the, and not having those two things be at odds um, is like, is that's, that's like an emotionally healthy person, relationship, community, or company. Yeah, well said. I, it's, it's really great to hear you language it in this way um, because it feels very intuitive um, and it also feels like that is the way forward. And, um, you know, before this podcast, we talked about uh, this concept of entrepreneurship, which is, I know, a topic that is near and dear to your heart. You have thought leadership around. And I um, wanted to just read a little excerpt from the Harvard Business Review that talks about um, what this thing is. Um, so they say, ultimately, all entrepreneurs and intrapreneurs are in it for this very reason. They want to improve the world and drive progress. And you can do the same through your everyday work. And this word is a little bit newer to me. So I'd love to yeah, ask you, what is your personal working definition of entrepreneurship? And why do you see this mindset becoming more important as we think about the future of work? Yeah. So I think in a traditional sense and, and sort of how folks un use the words entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship, I think generally the um, commonly accepted definitions is like entrepreneurship is like starting something new, right? Building, building, building from greenfield, basically, right? And entrepreneurship is more about innovating and creating within an existing system, right? And so, you know, in a practical sense, an entrepreneur might start a business and an entrepreneur, which before I was an entrepreneur, I identified as an entrepreneur. And I still, I still identify as an entrepreneur um, as well. But I, you know, I was working in large organizations and starting new stuff in them, right? And like in the existing matrix and system and, and you know, ways of working and stuff. So it sort of, it was still of the same DNA, but it was also, it, you know, similar to what I was just talking about, it was like still 
consistent with identity, but, but change. Right. And, and I think that what makes, I think that what make, makes entrepreneurship really, really important as a, as a sort of skill set or practice or way of being right now and moving into the future is kind of linked back to, again, what I, what I was sort of saying about this, these systems, right. That like recognizing that in some sense, we are all in the organization of humanity, <laughs> you know, um, and specifically I'll, I'll, I'll speak mostly about the U S right. That we are all in this, uh, system, this, and that means government, it means history, it means, um, geography, it means, you know, it's just sort of language. It's all of the, all of the like compounding, uh, features of the moment and space that we find ourselves in. And so the only thing we can do is entrepreneurship within that system, right? There are plenty of folks who would love, love, love to say, no, this whole system, capitalism is busted and it makes us sick in a million ways, which it does, it is and it does, right? And lots of people would say, we have got to scrap this and make a new system, right? They're like, that's like an entrepreneurship route is like, let's sprout something else up. And I, and I've talked to folks in, in other countries, right. That are like less developed and are saying like, we have an opportunity for, you know, almost entrepreneurship, um, because we have a choice in sort of how we develop, but over here in the U S I think we're stuck with entrepreneurship. And I think that there's what, what we do is we, again, ground in the reality of what is beautiful about the capitalism and colonialism and, you know, all of these like things that have led to pathological and, and, and violent ends, right? Ground in the center of gravity of what the actual good identity of being an American is and recognize our capacity for change and be really good practitioners of the entrepreneurship of changing this country. And you can take that in a political context. You can take that in a business context. You can take that in a religious context. You can take that, you know. And so I think that this, I think that the skill set of saying, okay, I'm in this system and there's, there's the only, my only options are either to escape it or to work within it. And a lot of us are going to pick the one to work within it and not just accept it as it is to still see the capacity for change and see how we can keep building um, and changing while respecting and valuing the the beautiful parts of our identity. Mm. And to bring it into the context of DEIA and organizational being, um, is there a way where they can overlap? Do you see entrepreneurship as a tenet of one of these uh, DEIA pillars? And if so, who's, I mean, I guess it's everyone's role if you think about like, how do you create culture from the inside out? But let's start there. Do you see an overlap between these two, DEIA and entrepreneurship? Yeah. I mean, it's, um, I don't, I don't know that, um, I don't know that you can, I mean, to the, to the extent that, that doing work in DEI and A, you know, doing any, any kind of culture change, right. Is definitionally, I think entrepreneurship, right. And so it starts and what it starts looking like is, is very much a function of what the, or how the organization works, right. Like, are you a place where task forces, you know, spring up, do things and then, you know, and like, and evolve in that way. Or are you a place where you thrive on sort of having it built into your org structure, right? And in which case, like, cool, let's build it that way, you know, because organizations have different physiology, right? <laughs> like they have different mechanics based on when they were started, whom they were started by, you know, there's this, the, there's a, a theory around this from Frederick Leloux's book, uh, Reinventing Organizations. And, and it's, you know, that there's this evolution of different types of structures of organizations and, and each model is going to re uh, require a different 
kind of entrepreneurship. Um, so all that's to say that, yes, <laughs> I think um, entrepreneurship is one of the core competencies, both individually and organizationally, right? Like, do we do we have, if you are a change agent of DEI&A or of anything, honestly, but of DEI&A, what is your capacity for entrepreneurship? What is your capacity for like looking around and saying, okay, these are the tools I have and like, what can I build with them? And as an organization, do you have the capacity to support entrepreneurship, right? To like see feedback as a generous and beautiful gift and to support folks who want to contribute to the future of your team that maybe you couldn't think of. So going back to that earlier example that you colored for us where, uh, a group of uh, male leaders, um, you know, sets up a meeting for people to discuss something without leaders in the room, but they leave. And it's like, well, you're taking the power with you. In that case, how could entrepreneurship be activated or, you know, in in like, you know, low hanging fruit wise, it doesn't have to be this big, complex, high budget production, but just in that moment, what could be a way where that scenario could shift into this more inclusive and empowering moment? Totally. Yeah. So for, for that kind of example where you've got um, a couple of folks or one or, you know, you have localized power. And in that case, you know, it it is sort of hierarchically at the top um, and you want to be able to activate this DEI&A efforts. They're sort of uh, there's maybe two routes that sort of um, emerge to me. One is one is that like those people need to be leading the charge, right? Like if those people are holding the power, they need to be actively engaged in the efforts of DEIA, right? Because if they're not, the all of the you know the like who has the power to do is not the people doing this work, right? So option one is that they have to be. Um, champions and and actually sort of like leading the charge there. Option two is that they intentionally sort of bestow power, right? Um, and actually sponsor power um, in other folks, right? Because one of the things that they have the power to do is empower other people. And there's this idea of of sort of like source or of ownership or, you know, where you say like, you you position somebody very clearly and say like, in this, you can do this in all sorts of different ceremonies, right? That's like, I, person with power, am declaring that this person, group, team, whatever it is, is in power to do this thing, right? And then you authentically actually support that, right? You, you like actually kind of keep to that word. And so I think, I think those are the kind of solutions that you can work with um, in the kind of situation that I described, right, is um, is either like using your power to do it or using your power to empower somebody else to do it. Does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, yeah. It's um, It makes total sense. It's very intuitive. And even hearing you explain that, I just wonder why it's not happening more. Or maybe it is, um, but that it, it can be very accessible to <laughs> do the DEI&A. Well, I think there's actually a few really interesting answers to that um, about why people don't do that. One, that, you know, in the specific example that I sort of referenced about the people with the power sort of left the room, they really thought that if they weren't there, other people would have the power. Like they didn't realize that that's what was happening. And they didn't realize they, and when they came back, they were like, I don't understand why you all haven't done this. Like what what is going wrong in here? Um, and just didn't understand that that was the dynamic that was happening. So I think one is that you just don't know that that's like, that that's where the power is sitting. Another is like, you know, it, um, with option one, where those folks sort of lead the charge, diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility is like the one spot where straight white men realize that maybe they shouldn't be in charge, you know, and maybe, it's inappropriate for them to be in charge, right? And so it becomes this very uncomfortable situation where if you have been the leader of everything in the organization, right? If the organization is a universe that sort of revolves around you, it's suddenly there's this thing that you're like, I don't know how to hold my power in this space, right? And that's a very appropriate reckoning. Like that is that is part of this work is sort of noticing like, oh, 
this is complex, right? And my identity plays a role here. Um, and so that sort of does send it sideways sometimes. It, it's sort of like, it can make it really tough for leaders to figure out how to, how to, how to handle that right. You know, and I've seen a lot of them do it with really good intentions that, you know, because, because they themselves have not necessarily internalized exactly how to operate in a different way. Right. They're, they're just as much a victim of the systems of oppression in terms of like their internalized systems being mucked up. Right. And so it's tough. It's tough to like say, oh, I suddenly understand how all of these dynamics of power and oppression work. And I know exactly how to gracefully remove myself from it um, or operate in it. I mean, it is, it is like a very specifically challenging instance for that kind of entrepreneurship. So it's, there's a way in which it's sort of a, a no wonder, you know, that, that it's, that folks haven't by and large, just sort of like naturally learned how to do this um, from their past experience, right? Because it's 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 a new, very different um, challenge for a lot of them. Yeah. And in this case, um, it requires a level of vulnerability that, you know, might be interpreted as weakness versus actually you can be in your greatest power when you admit that you don't know and create the space for the answers to emerge. Um I mean, we had Monsi on the show uh, last week who talked about leadership and, and you know, what are the leadership leaders of tomorrow going to have to consider when thinking about driving real change and establishing a path that really works for everyone, which can sound very ideal and very hard at this point, but I guess being messy and being okay with that is part of the learning and the growing pain of becoming something different. Yeah. Well, and I, and it's funny. Yeah. I look forward to hearing Muncie's uh, uh, episode. She's really brilliant and wonderful. I think, yeah, it's, it's really interesting because it's like, you know, the exact pathology that we're trying to cure is what makes it really hard to cure. Right. And, you know, this, I think this, um, your point about like that you can be a great leader and say, I don't know that like, you know, and, and I imagine that like you and Monsi would say like, actually part of being a great leader is recognizing that you often don't know. Right. And being, being, you know, secure enough to say, and I bet somebody else who's very different from me does, or that at least with somebody else's help, like we can. And what's interesting is that like, you know, one of, one of the beautiful pathologies of, of white supremacy is the concept that there is good and there is bad, there is right and there is wrong, and that everyone is being held to that same standard of perfection, and that everyone has a moral obligation to pursue good and right and anyone who falls short is wrong and bad and and therefore doesn't deserve anything. And like, what a mess. There's so many parts of that that are <laughs> not a path to healing, right? And not a path to risk-taking or creativity or innovation or difference, you know, or, or honestly like fun, you know, like th- that doesn't sound that doesn't sound like the future we want to be pointing toward. And, but that's the piece that sort of, you know, we've been raised in and especially organized like um, leaders who have thrived in our existing systems have done so by convincing people that they're more close to that idealized, very specific identity of good and correct than their peers. And so of course, again, it's another, it's no wonder that that's the like, the 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 thing that makes it really hard when you get to the place where the whole point is saying that I'm not the only like that no one person and particularly me is not the holder of this truth and that different is not just not bad it's good right <laughs> that there are many ways to be perfect in fact, there are infinite ways. There's exactly as many ways to be perfect as there are human beings in the world. So there's an ever-increasing number of ways to be perfect. So, you know, it it it, it makes sense that like the, the exact system, and it's, it's one of these things that's like, it's not until you sort of notice, oh, I'm getting caught up in exactly that thing that I'm trying to heal, that you get to keep internalizing, you know, and keep rooting into 
the practice of liberation, right? And justice. Woo. Yeah, this, I feel like this, we need a part two or something to get more into the justice piece as well, because I know being a member of the community that you helped co-found Rising Practitioners, there are so many different disciplines and histories and ideas that we grapple with in this world of complexity that exists both within ourselves and then in the world. And sometimes there aren't these clear answers, but the process of exploring is actually, I think, the work. And the answers will come when they come, but it's just daring. You know, Brene Brown wrote a book called Daring Greatly, or is that what it's called? Yeah. But she, you know, has studied vulnerability um, for over a decade. And um, it's just really brilliant that people are leaning into this realm where we don't have the answers, but it's okay. And it can be very simple. And so much can uh, exist within that space. So um, I guess to round out this conversation, um, I always like to ask our guests, what is a, a message or a question that our audience can reflect on beyond this conversation. And we've been speaking about a lot of different types of people today. So it can be to the person that has the power to implement DEINA and or the person who wants to cultivate their entrepreneurship so that they can feel more fulfilled and more seen in their current place of work and perhaps shift the way that they relate to what they do. So I'm going to give you, I'm actually going to give you two um, because I really like that prompt. Um, And so I want to share what just like emerged in hearing it. Um, And I wanted to give you the question that I've been obsessed with the last like couple of weeks. And I've been basically saying it as many times a day as I can, because I love the like responses and reactions I get to it. Um, so the first one to answer your question more specifically, I mean, I think that, um, I think I go back to that point that we were talking about earlier about what, what does it, what does it look like? What does it look like both to have a great wish for change, right? A vision for the future and to hold it at the same time as you hold a deep and unconditional appreciation for what is true right now. Right. That like that, that, you know, again, that when that is the mark of a good um, change agent is both loving, you know, and this is, this can be yourself. This can be your team. This can be your organization. It could be your partner. It can be whatever. It's like really truly loving it as it exists right now. And having a great, recognizing the great capacity for change that it has to, to realize a vision more fully. And so I thought, I think that, yeah. And so the correlate, the second one is actually a corollary to that, which is I've been, I've been walking around asking myself over and over and everybody else, what would it look like if we took all of the energy that we spend trying to be the best versions of ourselves and instead instead reallocated that energy to actually truly believing that we already are the best versions of ourselves i love it that's great that that feels very practical yet very mind blowing at the same time because we don't often count energy or cuz we can't see it we know it's there, but if you just tuned in a little bit more to notice and then to shift. Yeah. I mean, I see folks and, and, you know, being in the like coaching facilitating space, I see a lot of this mantra of like, you can be your best self, right? Like I can help you find and actualize the best version, the version of yourself you want to be. And you know, there's a lot of ways that I have, I have told that same story. I've lived that same story. And you know, I, 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 I have found from my, my own practice. And I think, um, in a lot of the places I've been carrying this question around to that I end up doing 
a lot of the same, like it's the same outcome in a sense. If I switch to this other narrative that like, I already am that person and I just need to like practice actively practice loving that about myself, you know, but it's, it, um, it just changes, it changes the, yeah, again, I keep coming back to center of gravity, like instead of sort of this like straining forward, reaching, striving, um, to try and attain something that's out there. It's like, what does it happen if I can just land exactly where I am and still receive, right. Um, and still be open to, and still, you know, be changed and be moving and stuff, but like from firmly planted in a, in a, in a fully held belief that exactly who I am is exactly right. And not just okay, but the best it possibly could be. That feels, um, yeah, I just feel like, I don't know, doing a dance. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's a great question. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, let's all feel that way. That's liberation, right? That's permission to be you. That's permission to show up um, and and still, you know, do the work of 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 change of entrepreneurship in your system and in in your system, right? But but from a place of of foundational love, right? And and value and respect, right? And it really again um, helps bridge really the the core soul of um, presence and mindfulness, which is just to accept what is as it is without needing to change anything. But then adding on what you're saying, where you can also look forward and open capacity for change and still be present with what is. So it's, it's holding that level of complexity, but in a good way to hold these different parts of ourself in wholeness. Which know that we keep saying this is the last thought, but again, when, when we think about in an organization, right. And, and again, zooming back and forth between individual and and group, right. That like, you can imagine the, the like analogy here of different internal parts of yourself and different types of people in your organization, right. That like, I think you, you referenced this early in, in the, in our interview, but that there are ways that and that I really believe that our resistance to other people and, and like our inability to accept things in other people that creates this kind of division, right? I think we see this in, in the political landscape and, and sort of all aspects of, of inclusion. The things that we cannot accept about other people are rooted in our own self-resistance, right? Our, our own inability to accept things about ourselves. And so it is in that act of finding a way to love all those parts and say, they all belong here. They're, they're serving me in some way. There's something underneath, you know, if, if I, if I think I'm too, um, I'm too, uh, aggressive and, you know, insist on having my ideas. And I don't like that about myself, you know, cause it makes other people uncomfortable. It makes them feel boxed out or whatever. Like that's something that I'm like, Ooh, bad rata, right? But there's a good thing underneath it, right? There's a confidence, there's, there's a drive, there's ambition, there's passion. There's all of these things that like, that it's showing up in a, in a maybe wounded way, but like, but it is at its core, deeply lovable. Um, and it's here. So I have to love it. And like, what does, what happens when we look at that relationally, right? With other people in an organization, what happens when we say, you know, I see the wound in, you know, the leader of the opposing political party. Um, and I know that it's, that underneath it is a, a deep desire for security and for, um, justice of, of a, you know, in a different manifestation or, um, whatever, you know, religion, whatever the thing is, faith, um, that, that there's underneath it is, is fundamentally lovable, right? And what happens to our capacity to actually connect and authentically create justice and equity if we can still love across that difference? If we can say, like, I don't like the ways that it manifests in harm and violence, and we have to, like, address that, but the root reality of what creates that belief is good and belongs here. Thank you, Radha. So many layers. (laughs) Yeah, I got a little fired up at the end there. It's perfect. And it just is a testament to how 
mm, how deep we can go with these questions and how beautifully complex we are in all the realms that we live in, work in, operate in, etc. And I am so grateful that you yeah, could be with us today to share all of this wisdom. And I would just love to ask for anyone listening who would love to connect with you, um, connect with you further, how can they find you? Yeah, great question. Um, let's see. I think that the I actually am pretty good about my LinkedIn. So if you want to find me on LinkedIn, it's Rada, R-A-D-A. And my last name is Jovovich. I'll spell it Y-O, V is in Victor O, V is in Victor I-C-H. Um, so LinkedIn is actually a great place to start. Um, you can email me. It's Rada at RadaJovovich.com. And those are probably the best two starting points. Um, and I would, yeah, I would love to hear um, from anybody. I want to hear from collaborators. I want to hear from uh people who want to challenge me, please. Um, I would love those. Those are the folks who make my ideas the most, um, yeah, evolved and, and folks who, yeah, want to like come and join the journey or, you know, whatever. I would love to hear from folks. Beautiful. So we will include Rada's info in the show notes as well. So everyone can get in touch and continue this conversation. Thank you so much, Rada, for being with us. And um, for folks who are uplifted, shifted, moved in any way, please subscribe, give us a rating, just give us a shout. We want to spread these stories far and wide and are so grateful to have you all. So see you next week and more to come. The Alt Normal. This show is produced by Resonance, the creative practice of Dig, Seed, Grow. If you enjoyed this conversation, please show us the love. You can subscribe, share, or leave a review. We'd be so grateful to help us amplify these stories far and wide. Thanks so much.